0: Stuart Preston, and this is The Consciousness Podcast, where each week I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. This week I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bernard Cobe's from my own alma mater, Arizona State University. Dr. Cobe's has been an associate professor of philosophy at ASU since 1986, where he has been recognized with numerous awards. We covered everything from what it is like consciousness, to the emergence of consciousness in both individuals and in species, to the morality and ethics of uploading one's consciousness into a computer. So please enjoy this edition of the Consciousness Podcast with Dr. Bernard Combs. All right, and I do Good. appreciate your time because as
1: I mentioned in my emails, um, uh, I am a sun devil. And so after talking <laughs> to all these other people, I was like, why I need to find somebody at my alma mater. To, to talk about this. So it was, uh, I'm glad that I found you and I'm glad you agreed to do this.
2: Well, I'm honored to be the first Sun Devil on the podcast.
1: Yeah, awesome,
2: awesome. Okay, well, let's go ahead and,
1: uh, and get this kicked off. Um, I always like to start off with, you know, asking you, how do you define consciousness? Can you define it? Or what does consciousness mean to
2: you? Okay, good. Um, so the first thing to say is, Uh, Some definitions are very theoretical, and I do not have a strongly theoretical definition of consciousness. But another kind of definition is to point to examples. And uh, so that's what I'll do. Uh, And the examples that I'll point to all have something in common. They all have in common that They involve a quality of experience. So, for example, when you wake up and you're conscious and you have sensations, you feel hot or cold, you feel pain or you feel well-being, there's some quality to your experience. And so those are conscious experiences. And uh, if you uh, perceive something, you see that there's a tree in the distance, uh, you hear that there's a burglar in your house; those are conscious experiences as well, and they have it. This second example involves accuracy or inaccuracy. So, uh, the third, a third kind of example is uh, conscious thinking, uh, consciously moving from a premise to a conclusion, and there we can say that the conscious state can be evaluated as rational or irrational. And a fourth kind of example involves planning consciously, thinking about what's the best thing to do. And that can be rational or irrational as well. And moral categories can apply to those states. So to sum up, all my examples have in common that there's some felt quality to the experience. And Mm -hmm. they all have in common that they are the experiences of a conscious subject. So um, I can talk about a state being conscious, and I can talk about a subject being conscious. And they seem to belong to a fairly unified family. Uh, Some, but not all, can be evaluated for accuracy or rationality or morality. So that's my starting point in thinking about consciousness. And then we can talk about borderline cases, or we can talk about the origins of consciousness. But that's a further step. If we just start with some simple examples, that strikes me as the best place to start. Okay. Yeah, I think we'll get
1: into origins here in a little bit. And if not, we'll come back around and and try to address that. Okay. and, you know, one of the questions I saw, you know, you gave me some notes on the seminar you do at ASU, the philosophy of mind consciousness. And you mentioned the the medical phys- metaphysical aspects of what you say, an apparent tension between dependence of consciousness on the physical brain and body and the novelty of consciousness relative to the physical. So I guess I would start off trying to clear up my own confusion or lack of understanding ask you you know what is that dependence of consciousness on the physical brain and body and how does that relate to your your own um, position on you know dualism versus physicalism
2: yes great Um, so I think that we live in a fundamentally physical cosmos and so by Mm -hmm. physical I mean the kinds of particles and fields and phenomena that are discovered by physicists and the ways in which those physical things compound into more complex things and there seems to be a hierarchy from the elementary particles to the atoms to the cells to the living things the living tissues the living organisms the living brain and then finally to the psychological states of the brain the conscious states in particular Now, at each stage, we get some uh, distinctive kinds of laws and processes going on. And in the case of consciousness, we have both a dependence on the brain that is very intricate. And we know that from neurological studies, we know that from some, some simple things like the psychoactive effects of drugs that mimic the chemical structure of the neurotransmitters in the brain. So there's Mm -hmm. very clear dependence on physical. But on the other hand, I think there's something novel about consciousness, something that isn't understood or clarified fully in terms of its physical basis. And so that's the phenomenal quality of experience the way the mm-hmm. experience feels to the subject. I think there's something novel about that, something that I would call non-physical, a non-physical aspect to consciousness. And so the, uh, the, the area where I'm most focused on is trying to do full justice to the dependence, but also to do full justice... To the novelty of consciousness. Now, as you, what do
1: you mean by by the novelty of
2: consciousness? Well, uh, can I uh, uh, right? Let me let me uh, situate it first with respect to uh, an older tradition, which is uh, the dualist tradition of uh, our religious uh, communities and of Mm -hmm. some ancient philosophers like Pythagoras or Plato and some philosophers from the modern period like Descartes and there the thought is that the mind is uh, something that could exist all by itself that could exist free of the physical world and so uh, I want to reject that kind of traditional dualism and so here I'm trying to do justice to the dependence of the conscious mind on the physical world. I think the older dualist tradition failed because it did not sufficiently recognize the dependence on the physical. So a reaction set in where uh, philosophers and scientists either denied consciousness or they said that consciousness is just the same thing as a physical event in the brain. And so I want to deny that too. I want to say consciousness is not simply identical to what's going on in the conscious brain. So um, that's the element of novelty. Consciousness is not the same thing as a pattern of electrochemical activity in the brain. And why is that? Well, um, the main kind of argument that I rely on is uh, one that, uh, uh, first I'll just give you a very sketchy explanation of it, and then we can go into detail if you want. But the idea is that if you have full knowledge of what's going on in the brain, there's still something missing in your grasp of the nature of consciousness. If, you, if all you have is the knowledge of the physical stuff going on in the brain or in the rest of the world, you are missing something in your understanding of reality. Um, so that now there's a couple ways to try to make that more vivid, and one of them involves a thought experiment with Mary another one involves a thought experiment with a mathematical archangel. And so I don't know if you want me to uh, go into that in a little more detail, but just to sum up. Yeah, I think um, that'd be interesting. I, I know that I,
1: I think I had that a little later on here, but yeah, if that applies here, I think it would be interesting to, to talk about those, those thought experiments.
2: Okay. Well, um, here's a thought experiment that comes from the philosopher Frank Jackson in the 1980s and it involves a woman named Mary and she's brought up from birth in a black and white room and all she has access to are black and white and shades of gray visual experiences and so Mary is uh quite brilliant and she has access to video technologies that allow her to see black and white images of things in the world and to read black and white textbooks and their diagrams and equations and so she starts to study color experience but without actually having the experience of such color colors in fact right. she knows everything that's going on in our brains when we have color experiences and she discovers many new things about color experiences, and she can use her video monitor to apply the English color words, the words red and green and yellow and blue, for example. She can apply them to objects that appear on her black and white monitor because the technology allows her to label them with the English color, color words. So she learns everything physical that there is to know about human color experiences without actually having any color experiences. So right. the, the, the premise says that's metaphysically possible. That could happen in some possible world. Of course, it's very different from what we're capable of doing, and maybe it would be unethical. To try it in real life, but right, nevertheless, right. that seems like a possible world. There's no contradiction in what I've described. Now, let's add a further premise. Let's suppose that, uh, so just to reiterate, premise one is Mary knows everything physical that there is to know about human color experience. Now, Mary. Is allowed to go out of her color, uh, out of her black and white room, and into the world Mm -hmm. of human colors. And she sees a ripe tomato, and she recognizes it as a ripe tomato, and she knows that ripe tomatoes are red. And she has this dramatic, conscious color experience of red. And she says, Aha! Now I know what it's like to see red. So she has right. learned something. She's learned something that she did not know before about color, conscious color experience. That's premise 2 that Mary learns something that she did not know before the, what it's like to see something red. So right. now what, now comes the conclusion of the argument. If she knew everything Physical that there was to know, but she didn't know everything that there was to know. The conclusion is there are some things about color experience, the what it's like aspect of it, that go beyond the physical nature of conscious color experience. That's trying to make vivid the element of novelty. The what it's like aspect is not fully explained by the physical nature of what's going on in the brain. So that's one kind of argument. And then a related argument comes from a philosopher named C.D. Broad in the 1920s. And C.D. Broad imagined a mathematical archangel. So here's the idea. Let's suppose we've got a, a being with infinite rational powers but who doesn't know anything at all about our world. And now we tell this being, this mathematical archangel, everything physical about our world throughout all of space and time we give it all the physical laws, we give it the positions of all the fundamental particles, and we give it the outcomes. If there are some random processes in quantum reality, we give it the outcomes of all of those random events, and we give it the structure of space-time. And now we let it loose with its rational powers to deduce all of the emergent levels. And so here it goes. It deduces that these elementary particles combine to form atoms, and it can do that because all it requires is the basic information plus its rational computing powers. And then it right. deduces that these atoms combine to form molecules. And then it deduces that these molecules can combine to form lung chains, uh, the uh, proteins and the peptides. And then it deduces that these combine to form living tissues. And the thought is it can do all of that just from the physical basis plus its rational powers. And finally, it right. there are living organisms with living brains. But now, Charlie uh, Dunbar-Broad, C.D. Broad said, look, there's going to be a barrier at the level of conscious experience. The mathematical archangel, even though it has infinite rational powers, will not be able to know what it's like to be conscious for these beings that studying. And so that's related to the Mary thought experiment. It seems Mm -hmm. to to me it has has a, a, a plausibility to it that makes vivid the metaphysical novelty of our conscious experience. that
1: that what it's like yeah the yeah the what it's like consciousness
2: yeah and so and we and sometimes to call these aspects of consciousness we use the term the phenomenal qualities of experience Uh, Mm -hmm. and so that's and so that's a term that I'll use uh, to refer to the to the novel features of our experience those phenomenal qualities and is that the
1: phenomenal qualities?
2: Is that also referred to as the, the qualia? Yes. And so sometimes okay. people use the Latin term qualia for those qualities. And I'll and I'll use That's phenomenal English. quality. Phenomenal qualities, yes. Uh huh. All right, good. I'll stick with
1: English. I like that. Okay. Um, so, and I guess maybe as an extension of this and what you're talking about, I know you you've talked about this. What is it like? what it is like consciousness as layers and as you describe these thought experiments, I can, I can kind of see layers because there's the, the physical world and understanding the laws and deducing certain things from that. But there seems to be a whole nother layer if I'm understanding you correctly where yeah. you go into the metaphysical and where the consciousness is. But uh, can you describe these, these layers and also something I think you called emergentism?
2: Yes, and so emergentism is a family of theories. Uh, One of the key figures in the development of emergentism was the British philosopher John Stuart Mill, who in his uh, book, A System of Logic, described uh, laws at different levels of complexity in the world. And so that's a theme that really took hold in the British philosophical tradition. And so sometimes we call this tradition uh, British emergentism. And it followed through uh, George Henry Lewis, who, uh, 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 who, uh, who first used the term emergentism. So John Stuart Mill did not use the term, but George Henry Lewis did. And then Samuel Alexander and C.D. Broad, whom I've already mentioned. So these were, uh, mm-hmm. these were figures who uh, wanted to, to as, I, as I mentioned earlier, they, they, they wanted to capture the dependence of all reality on the fundamental physics, but also to do justice to the novelty of what was going on at the layers of complexity. Now, one thing that they, uh, that they built into their emergentism Uh, which uh, turned out to be wrong, was uh, they thought that at each level of complexity, some new kind of force would arise. And they called these configurational forces. And so when matter arranges itself into, um, into molecules, they thought there would be a force that would be new, that would apply to the molecules that would supplement all of the other fundamental forces of physics, like the electromagnetic forces. And and then they thought with living things there would be a new kind of force, and with consciousness there would be a new kind of force. And so those were called configurational forces. And and that turned out to be a misguided idea. So what I want to do is capture what was good about British emergentism, but to do without the configurational forces. That is, we don't have brand new forces in living things that go beyond the forces of physics. We don't have brand new forces of consciousness that go beyond the forces of physics. Nevertheless, what they got right, there is something metaphysically new, something metaphysically novel at the conscious level. And what is that? And so that would be what I mentioned earlier, the the what it's like aspect of experience. Okay. And um, uh, so I think another uh, thing I should stress is that uh, at each layer of complexity, we have distinctive levels of description and explanation. So mm-hmm. uh, there are dis- there, uh, ways of describing uh, chemical processes, the chemical bonds, the, the, uh, the chains of organic chemistry that are distinctive to that level of description. There are distinctive ways of Uh, describing and explaining processes in living things and there are distinctive ways of describing and process uh, uh, and explaining conscious processes how how for example one conscious experience might cause another Uh, so there are going to be laws and disciplines that are distinctive to each level Uh, we don't need configurational forces to acknowledge the reality of these new layers of explanation and description, new branches of science that go with each level of complexity.
1: Okay. In in the essence of these these laws, it's just really a matter of describing, almost defining the layer according to its own... um,
2: Right. If yes. Uh huh. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And um, uh, uh So uh, so if I'm right, there's going to be uh, a distinctive science of consciousness, but uh, it it won't be reducible to the lower level sciences. It won't be a matter of uh, of uh, finding the of of. Finding laws that show us that consciousness is really just the same thing as electrochemical activity in the brain.
1: Right. Um, this uh, this isn't something I really sent you in advance, but you're you're kind of reminding me of it. So I understand if, if uh, it's not something that you have an answer for right now. But one of the one of the things that's come up, as you mentioned, there's not a force that's going to explain this and and consciousness and those layers are not going to be explained by, you know, physics at that, at that level Um, has, has the notion of field theory come into play with any of your explorations? And the reason I bring that up is uh, you know, there's a lot of different angles of, of consciousness out there and a lot of different beliefs from, And we'll talk a little bit about panpsychism in a couple minutes, but there's, you know, cosmic consciousness and connected consciousness. And one of the things that has come up is how physics has gone from, you know, classical physics to quantum physics, you know, um, theory, you know, particle wave theory. And then now people are looking at um, field theory, where every electron is, is actually a part of, the electron field and every proton is part of the electron proton field. And as, as I hear people talk about that, then that makes me wonder if there's not something and I can't make the connection, but it seems like there, maybe there's something with how consciousnesses are connected to each other that might one day be explained. You know, if if field theory is proven to be, you know, the next step in, in quantum physics. Is, is that something that you've ever explored or had somebody, you know, present to you before? Is that something you guys talk about? Uh,
2: yes, it is. I'm, I'm, I'm a little doubtful that there will be any mm-hmm. straightforward extension of field theory to cover consciousness. So, in, in a field theory, you uh, see the physical world as uh, continuous mapping in the same way that if, for example, in Einstein's uh, general theory of relativity, uh, we, we see um, mass as a distortion of space-time. Um, and similarly, uh, we could think about consciousness as a kind of universal field. And there are philosophers who think of it that way. I'll mention... Um, the uh, famous example of uh, Baruch Spinoza, the uh, Dutch-Jewish philosopher of the 1600s. And uh, he thought of the uh, whole cosmos as a single conscious thing. And so to me, that resembles the field theories of physics. Uh, another philosopher who holds a view like this is the contemporary philosopher, Philip Gough, who adopts the view that the, the one fundamental thing is the whole cosmos. And the whole cosmos is conscious. And our individual consciousness, your consciousness, my consciousness, those are pieces of the whole. So. Um, So I'm making this connection. I'm calling Spinoza's view and Philip Goff's view. I'm calling that a field theory of consciousness. It's a form of Mm -hmm. panpsychism. It's not a view that I accept, but I do find it to be quite fascinating.
1: Right. Well, and that, that leaves me right in the next question. I know that you don't see panpsychism as plausible. Um, and I right. think that what you mentioned because of the, quote, combination problem. Is that, is that correct? And, and what does that mean?
2: Yeah. Um, if we think about the most simple primitive forms of consciousness in, on the scale of complexity of living things, or if we think of it in evolutionary terms as life developed, at what point did consciousness arise? I tend to think that my conjecture is that consciousness is uh, is distinctive to n- animals with nervous systems, and so just about any uh, multicelled animal has a nervous system. Now, um, right. a, a pan a panpsychist would say. Uh, no no don't be so chauvinistic about the animals with their nervous systems consciousness right. is going to be spread out throughout the whole cosmos uh, a panpsychist will say for every thing that exists in the, the especially at the level of fundamental particles of physics we can ask what is its intrinsic nature not its Uh, not the quantities that can be measured by the instruments of the physicist, but it's inner perspective. This for a panpsychist, this is a question that you can always ask. And a panpsychist's answer is there's something, uh, there's something like consciousness to everything that exists. E- including, for example, the electron or the quark of fundamental physics.
1: Right. So even that um, fundamental, because I've heard yeah. it mentioned like a, a stone or a rock, but even, even the most fundamental particle has some element of, of what it's like
2: to be that. That's right. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the motivation for this view comes from Bertrand Russell in a 1927 book that he wrote called The Analysis of Matter. And Russell held that physics only tells us the measurable relations among things. Physics remains silent on the crucial question of its intrinsic internal nature. And the panpsychist comes in and says, aha, you know what? Here's my answer. There is something uh, conscious or proto-conscious that we haven't yet recognized in physics that is the intrinsic internal nature of the electron or of the quark. So when you get to the brain the, of the multicelled animal with a central nervous system, that's going to involve a kind of con- concentration or aggregation of all of the psychic or conscious features or proto-conscious features of the particles that make up that brain Uh, so that's the that's a version of panpsychism and uh, just to say briefly why I'm not why why I'm reluctant to buy into this uh, I think it's really hard to see how you could combine uh, two elementary particles and to make a, a, a single conscious thing out of them. And so this is called the combination problem. And it goes back mm. to the philosopher William James pressed this as a difficulty. And he gave a colorful example. He said, look, if you take 100 people and each individual is conscious and you pack them tightly together, it doesn't follow that you're going to get a single conscious being out of them talking to each other or packing them together physically in space. So um, if, if you can't get a single conscious being just from conjoining individual human consciousnesses, the same problem would seem to arise for the conjoining of the conscious particles uh, in the panpsychist world picture, and, and so that's called the combination problem. It strikes me as a good reason to stay cautious about panpsychism.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. What, what, what about the the cases of um, where, where in an individual you cut the corpus callosum and you end up with the two hemispheres of the brain, and you almost end up with two different consciousnesses
2: yeah and i would even in, uh, right thank you uh i would even delete the word almost i think you do end up with uh two individual consciousnesses in those cases in so case. i'll say a little bit yeah let me say a little bit more about that because it's quite, quite interesting to me the um the um, uh i i talked about the what it's like aspect and i said it's it's uh, it's always going to be what it's like for a subject. And so there's going to be a conscious subject and there's going to be conscious states of that subject. So for me, that's mm-hmm. a very important requirement. You have to have both. But I don't think that the subject has to be a whole person, it can be a subpersonal part. And I think that's what happens in the famous. Uh, split-brain experiments. So uh, it, can I talk a little bit more about the split-brain experiments here? Or please. You, yeah? yeah, please. So um, in the, it, 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 we, we used to treat uh, patients with uh, severe epilepsy by cutting through the fibers that join the left half and the right half of the brain. And it turned out that they could function pretty well in normal life after that operation. But when you put them in a psychologist's lab, you could find evidence that there was disconnected conscious experiences going on both in the left and the right hemisphere. Those conscious experiences could be in conflict with each other. They might, for example look at the word a uh, compound word like the word like the compound word penknife and if you f- flash the stimulus to the subject in just the right way only the right hemisphere sees the word pen and only the left hemisphere sees the word knife and so there's evidence that the right hemisphere thinks that the word was pen and this is a conscious experience in the right hemisphere. And only the left hemisphere thinks that the word was knife. And this is another conscious experience in the left hemisphere. And because we cut through the fibers in the corpus callosum, the the two conscious experiences could not be normally integrated into the knowledge of the compound word penknife. Right. So, um, so I think that uh, uh, that's a that's a case of conscious fission. F i s s i o n. We split mm-hmm. consciousness into two parts. It was only temporary, and it was task specific. For the, in this psychology experiment, for this particular task, we were able to create segregated conscious experiences, one in each hemisphere. Now, um, I, if we did eventually get those, uh, in normal life, the, the subject does have ways of uh, integrating the information. In that, and mostly for those patients, it involved moving their eyes around so that the whole word would get to the left hemisphere. Penknife knife would get into the left hemisphere. And then with another movement of the eyes, the whole word, penknife, would get into the right hemisphere. So the subject got a functional unification that uh, in the the experiment that the psychologists did that prevented that unification from occurring. So yeah, you always have to have a subject for a conscious experience, but the subject doesn't need To be a whole person, it could be a part of a person, as it is in those cases.
1: Okay. Yeah, because I guess what I was thinking is if we divided the subject into the two brains, we end up with two separate consciousness. Um, And I don't know if it's even possible, but at least theoretically, if we recombined the, the two hemispheres of the brain back into a whole, do we end up with a different consciousness? And does that present a problem? for you know this notion of the, the combination problem? Does it present a problem for that problem?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, uh, for me, the combination problem is sharpest for the elementary particles. That is, it's a, it's a, it's a real problem to understand how a conscious particle could combine with another conscious particle to create a larger conscious whole. For example, it's very hard to imagine that a water molecule would have its own consciousness that resulted from the joining of the two hydrogen and the one oxygen uh, atom that made it up. Uh, So to me, that's a difficulty for uh, panpsychism now uh, yeah. when it comes when it comes to uh beings that have some physical complexity to them like a brain that is and you have an emergent conscious left hemisphere mind and an emergent conscious right hemisphere mind it seems like we could join them By the corpus, we do join them in a normal subject with the corpus callosum, and so maybe that's possible for human beings as well. So, as you know, um, the uh, there's a lot of interest in um, uh, electronic interfaces. Is it possible Mm -hmm. for people to manipulate? objects like a computer cursor, for example, uh, by, by establishing an electronic link between the physical brain and the computer. And there are uh, technologies now where that can be done, where you can, um, as, as they report it, uh, just by thinking about it, you can move the cursor. If you've got a brain implant or something that, even if it's not fully implanted into your brain, if it's just the detecting. The evoked potential at the surface of the scalp, you can get linked up and you'll be able to um, to manipulate a computer cursor. So that technology is going to develop and grow in the next few decades. And uh, uh, we might imagine what could happen if we are able to join two human beings with that kind of technological high bandwidth link. And maybe the result would be a single mind that is the fusion of those two individual human minds. Uh, So uh, I do think that's a plausible scenario and one that might really happen. Not, I think, in your or my lifetime, but in the lifetime of our species, it could really happen that we create new forms of joint consciousness by the splicing together of two brains with a high bandwidth link.
1: Yeah, that would be, that would be pretty exciting. And I can also see your explanation that that's really not so much of a, of a panpsychism discussion as it is a whole different
2: element. That's right. Yeah. Combining. Yeah, Yeah. Right. And I, I did, I did worry about this quite a bit, uh, and, and I think the, the problem for the panpsychist is that um, there's nothing comparable to a high bandwidth link that could join the el- conscious elementary particles. So it, it, yeah. for example, if, if you have a quark and an electron, there's, there's no way that you could join them with, uh, with a physical link because the physical link would be much larger than those elementary particles are themselves. Right.
1: Okay. Yeah, that that is uh that is fascinating. Thank you for that that discussion. That was that was very interesting.
2: Um yeah, uh, and so as, as as I mentioned I I'm uh, a kind, I'm developing a kind of emergentist theory and I think we might not be done yet. With the kinds of emergence that are possible, so we don't—the you know, future is open. We haven't necessarily reached the end of uh, emergent complexity. Uh, it, right. uh, there, there, are, there are science fiction scenarios that might have echoes in in the future of our species, where we create new forms of consciousness by our uh, biological and uh, technological links between people
1: yeah and then in in doing so and uh and then i'll I'll pull us back to our original questions but when you bring that up it that creates all kinds of moral and ethical questions because if i if you can combine two consciousness to make a third suddenly you're responsible for the moral and ethical treatment of that that new consciousness
2: that's right and and um uh and of course there are uh political and social questions. Uh, if, if, uh, we already know that uh, uh, information technology is uh, 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 making the problems of social inequality worse. If, for example, we, it, it turns out that we can achieve a kind of immortality by uh, transferring our minds to uh, a larger technological system, then uh, that's mm-hmm. obviously going to raise very serious uh, uh, ethical questions and questions about e- equality and justice as well.
1: Right. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I wanted to, to yeah, talk so to you about I'm, this. And,
2: oh yeah, go ahead. Can, can I mention? Yeah, on on the same topic, um, the um, uh, there's a lot of interest these days in the theoretical possibility of downloading one's mind onto a computer uh, right. and as, as an emergentist I think that is a, that is a serious possibility this, we don't really know what kinds of uh, physical systems uh, consciousness can emerge from So uh, the ones that I think we do already know about are the animal central nervous systems But I think it's a wide open question, something that nobody really has yet a good understanding of, whether uh, a silicon-based or a neural network, uh, an artificial neural network created by, uh, say, Google, whether that could support consciousness. And uh, I think the answer is probably yes but our understanding of consciousness is too primitive so far to really say with confidence whether that's possible.
1: Right. Yeah, and I guess in the science fiction world, it's almost like it might appear by accident, you know, by creating something um, with unintended consequences of suddenly something becomes conscious.
2: Yes, that's right. We don't have the
1: full understanding. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we are going to have increasingly sophisticated robots that we interact with. And uh, uh, at at first, those robots are not going to be conscious. But as they get better and better at dealing with fine-grained problem-solving situations and at dealing with us and our emotional needs, are the robots eventually going to reach a level at which they're conscious? And at which we start having to treat them as having the rights that accrue to a conscious being. I think those are interesting questions that will, uh, that may very well become real. They're real open possibilities for our technological future.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, these self-driving cars might be our first experience with that, the way they're already having to make decisions on whether or not to run over somebody and,
2: that's right. giving them driver's yeah.
1: licenses, and it's, it's interesting.
2: That's right, yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. Um, I had a couple open-ended questions I wanted to finish with, but before we get to that, I, I was curious about about this and, and see if I'm on the right track here, but your, your paper you wrote, your thoughts and conjectures about distinctively human forms of consciousness, you know, as a result uh, from the lecture given by Ian Tattersall. Um, yeah. There's a couple of key things in there that that I'm kind of curious about. You know, the the blocks notion of quote access to consciousness, and yes. also we've been talking about emergence of of consciousness and a lot about individuals. I'm also curious about, you know, emergence of consciousness within a species. So you know, I don't know if there's something in there that you'd like to, you know, expand on a little bit from from that.
2: Yeah. So it's, uh, so to me, this is one of the key areas where uh, a science of consciousness should focus. Uh, I think that the most primitive forms of consciousness are conscious sensations, and we get those in very simple multi-celled animals. But conscious perception is a new form of consciousness, one that involves uh, uh filtering out variation in the proximal stimulus to reach out to a property of the external world. For example, properties of distance, properties of relative distance and occlusion, where one thing is behind another, and properties of size, shape, and motion. Those external properties get represented in perception. And I think that that exists in insects already. And so with the level of complexity that occurred in insects, we have a a new form of consciousness that goes beyond mere sensation, but actually represents external properties of the world. Hmm. Now, I, I distinguish, so I distinguish sensation from perception. And I also distinguish perception from thought. So I think that uh, a a perceiving animal uh, could develop a a new form of a new way to use its perceptions. And so I call this perceptual thought, where the perceptual states get incorporated into imaginative exercises. And some mm-hmm. elementary logical forms like the if-then would attach to the employment of perceptual imagination, where you imagine walking around this object, what would it look like from the other side? And so I call yeah. that perceptual thought. And it's a form of if-then thinking. If I walk around, mm-hmm. then I will see such and such. Um, right. Here, here's, here's an example. You. Uh, if, you, um, if you show a chimpanzee uh, two buckets and uh, you drop a juicy piece of apple into one of them, but, but the chimp can't tell yet which bucket you dropped the apple into. You, maybe you temporarily blocked its view. You drop the apple in, the chimp heard it go plunk. The chimp knows that there's a juicy apple in one bucket, but he doesn't know which one yet. And you show it the empty bucket, the chimp will know that the other bucket has the juicy bit of apple. So the chimp is right. engaging, on my understanding of this experiment, the chimp is engaging in perceptual thought. The chimp has deduced, if I uh, that bucket is empty, one of the buckets has a juicy piece of apple. If I look into the other bucket, it will have the juicy piece of apple. So that's a kind right. of logical deduction that the chimp is capable of. So I'll call that perceptual thought. It's based on imaginative exercises of perceptual motor routines that the chimp is able to do. Now, uh, uh, humans are have distinctive capacities that are associated with language. And uh, in my view, uh, Ian, uh, the view that I, I share with the a distinguished paleoanthropologist Ian Tattersall, uh, something rather dramatic happened about uh, uh, 20 to 40,000 years ago. And that was the development of human language. And suddenly, a new form of consciousness was made possible where the, you, you had uh, movable chunks of thought. We could call those concepts. And they uh, mm-hmm. are associated with the ability to represent them by words. And we can move them around. If you think Jack kissed Jill, you can move it around to create Jill kissed Jack. So you have uh, the, 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 the ability to generate uh, in, an infinitely large set of possible thoughts that your language and your conceptual complexity enables you to do. Suddenly you can introduce tenses and think vividly about the past and about the future. And you can think vividly about what another person is thinking. And so uh, there were dramatic increases in mental time travel, mental planning, mental memory, dramatic increases in social understanding in mind reading of others. And so Uh, This, uh, uh, I'll use the term rational access consciousness for this. Uh, We have Mm -hmm. conscious states with a new form, with a new sort of structure that isn't Mm -hmm. present in animals that don't use language. And uh, that is what I think of as the distinctively human form of consciousness. And then uh, perhaps another distinctively human form came up with the development of human written culture, uh, the, the, the rise of large cities and civilizations, and so that was much more recent, perhaps uh, six to 10,000 years ago. Uh, so I think of those as uh, uh, emergent stages within consciousness, uh, tracing all the way back to the most primitive forms, which is conscious sensory experience and going yeah. through several dramatic changes to reach the, uh, uh, to reach the the powerful forms of thought that, that humans are conscious uh, that the humans are capable of.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because it is the language and writing and maybe even art are the things that do seem to be able to connect our, consciousness together like you said be able to transfer concepts from one
2: yeah yeah and yeah one member to another right and I also think that each uh, builds on the previous stage but also has something novel so the so the structure of dependency and novelty I want to apply that to these stages in the evolution of consciousness so consider the transition from sensation to perception Well, perception does involve sensation, but it also involves something novel, namely the the accuracy of the perceptual state. The transition from from perceptual thought to human linguistic thought, uh, that obviously depends on perception of those words that people are speaking. But it also brings in something new, namely the combinatorial Recursive structure that language makes possible for our thoughts, and then the um, and then the transition from uh, human linguistic thought to uh, the, the the forms of uh, rational thought that go with mathematics and science and other forms of sophisticated reflection that uh, came about six to ten thousand years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. That builds, of course, on the previous capabilities of linguistic thought. but It brings in something new. It brings in the application of uh, normative, uh, communal normative judgment, where we have communities working together to evaluate each other's thoughts and recording them and building incrementally upon them. So to me, that's the novel aspect of uh, human civilization that occurred in the in the first occurred in around six to ten thousand years ago Wow. yeah yeah are there going to be be new stages of human evolution of consciousness Uh, I think it's possible I can't imagine them in detail Uh, and of course there's there what we're seeing now is, uh, has some negative elements. We're seeing forms of social dysfunction that come about from social media. But uh, if we can overcome those, and uh, and, uh, it's, it, and if we apply our technologies in, in a beneficial way, I think we could. We could. Uh, the, the future is wide open for what forms of emergence are still possible.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is that is kind of exciting to think about, and it kind of leads me into you know, my first wrap up question is, you, you know, you've already mentioned a little bit of this in terms of possibly connecting, um, consciousnesses together, but do you see any breakthroughs coming, you know, in the next, I don't know, five, 10, 20, 50 years in the, the study or understanding of consciousness? Is there anything that you're, you're excited to see kind of come to fruition or a new understanding about anything that's coming, coming down the line?
2: Well, uh, yes, I, uh, uh, it's of course always very risky to try to predict the future of science. Uh, everyone who, who mm-hmm. tries to do that ends up uh, being laughed at later on. Uh, right, but, right. I'll, but, I'll, but I'll do my best. So uh, wh- one area where, where I think uh, the, uh, the, the most progress in scientific understanding is likely to come about is in uh, paleoanthropology and in the study of different forms of animal consciousness and animal cognition so those mm-hmm. uh, I, I think I think we're still at the beginning of, of understanding what types of things can be conscious so uh, right. consider uh, consider a related question what types of things can be alive I think that's already a very hard question problem and one that exobiologists are very interested in and that's for for exobiology the the possibility of life outside of earth that's a a very hard and interesting question Um, and we don't yet know what range of possible physical configurations could be alive and so i would argue that the problem of consciousness is a hundred times more difficult than the problem of life, and so if we 're already right. if we 're already stuck with this very difficult theoretical problem of what kinds of things can be alive uh, it 's going to be a hundred times harder to figure out what kinds of things can be conscious so i 'm not uh, um, I'm not a a principled pessimist about ever knowing of these things. I think that uh, we will eventually know the answers in scientific terms of the nature of consciousness. But I think, first of all, it's going to be a long, slow road because the problems are very difficult. And second of all, I think that it might involve some kind of conceptual revolution that we can't imagine yet. Uh, to to know what kinds of things, what are the limits of what kinds of things can be can be conscious. Uh, I know that um, right now there's a lot of focus on neural network computing, and it's right. going on not, not just in the universities, but even more in the um, in in the large uh, IT companies like the Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what kinds of breakthroughs will happen there? Um, I think that um, I think that's uh, going to be a, a substantial focus of interest and advance for cognitive power. Now, the relation between cognitive power and consciousness is something that nobody really understands very well yet. Right? So, AI is going to develop rapidly in the next few decades but whether that will be an advance in conscious machines that's a very difficult question and i really don't have uh any any insights into whether uh the the ai systems that google and facebook are developing whether those will actually be conscious
1: yeah yeah it will be exciting to find that out because i think the the other thing you had mentioned earlier about transferring of one's consciousness and one's mind, um, is obviously going to, if it, you know, be a big part of that development of neural networks and, and AIS.
2: Yes, indeed.
1: Mm -hmm. And and handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another question, and I'm not sure that this is even a relevant question to the things that you presented or not, but I like to ask it anyway, is, uh, do you think that one's consciousness, because we've talked a lot about the the theory of consciousness and bigger pictures of consciousness when you think about one's own consciousness is it something like a a muscle or knowledge or wisdom that that we can develop that we can exercise it improve it expand on our own consciousness is it something that we can mold and play with like clay Uh,
2: that's a very interesting question Um, uh, part of me wants to say yes, but another part of me is impressed with how difficult it is to uh, engage in such exercises. Uh, so here's a, here's, a related, um, here's a related question. How, how easy is it to improve our rationality? Uh, the psychologist Daniel Kahneman developed a Uh, a a lot of very interesting insights into human rationality and human irrationality. And when people asked him, uh, can we use this to improve human rationality? His answer was, look, I wrote the book. It didn't improve my own rationality. (laughs) So, um, so I think theoretical understanding of these issues is not going to translate very easily into human improvement. That's going to be a painful process uh, that will rely a lot on techniques that we already have, techniques of education, of moral formation, of moral uh, argument and criticism and uh, engaging in the kinds of struggles that we're all very familiar with to become better individuals and to become a better society. I don't see the theory of consciousness as giving us any kind of fast track to a solution to those difficult moral and social problems. Right. There are uh, there are also, as as you know, there are uh, uh, religious traditions, and some of them em- emphasize uh, meditation, meditative techniques, and those are ways of manipulating your conscious contents and your and the structure of your consciousness. Uh, they aren't yeah. easy. They they involve training, uh, understanding consciousness. I doubt that it will make it easier it might give us new insights uh, and a lot of people have been thinking about uh, buddhist meditation techniques and its relationship to the theory of consciousness and we might gain mm-hmm. some new insights into that form and i think we will but um, uh, if, if if people are hoping for a magic bullet which uh, part of me does hope for uh, another part of me is another part of me is going to say, uh, you know, don't engage in wishful thinking, uh, whether it be philosophical or scientific wishful thinking. Uh, be aware of the difficulties of our of our um, moral and social and rational efforts, and they involve education, and they involve training, uh, and they involve uh, serious and responsible discussions within the society.
0: Yeah,
1: and it seems to be a common theme in, in in life is uh don't wait for the magic pill, put in the hard work.
2: Yeah, right. Right, exactly. Yeah.
1: All right, excellent. Well, in addition to to everything we've discussed here, I know we didn't quite get to all the questions I sent over, but in addition to all this, is there is there anything else that you'd like to make sure and, and get out there?
2: Uh well, I think we've covered the main things that uh uh, that uh, uh, that I wanted to talk about. I think that uh, the idea of uh, of uh, tra- uh, stages and forms of consciousness is an important one for scientific focus, and I think it will also uh, give give us a greater understanding of uh, animal minds. And uh, I think that there is a moral aspect to that as well. the uh, The idea of empathy. And the, uh, and the idea of compassion is connected to our understanding of the minds of other people. And uh, that yeah. includes uh, people who are very different from us, and it also includes animals.
1: Right. Right. Good point. Yeah, I, I know another one of my guests uh, turned into a, a vegetarian.
2: Oh, I interesting. Yeah.
1: I think, yeah, and exploring yeah. all this yeah. and, and realized, like, you know, I can no longer eat these consciousnesses.
2: Yeah, right. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, good.
1: Well, thank you for bringing that up. And uh, like, again, I'm I'm really grateful for your time, Dr. Codes. I think all, all your students at ASU and your colleagues are fortunate to be able to spend even more time with you and, and learn from you. So I, I'm grateful for your time here today and, and really appreciate the, all your answers and explorations with us at the, uh, the Consciousness Podcast.
2: Well, you're very kind, and I thank you for your interest, and I enjoyed the discussion a lot.
0: That concludes another edition of The Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash theconsciousnesspodcast at our Twitter handle at conchcast and don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.